Hello, everyone, and welcome to Capital A, Unauthorized Opinions on Art and Money. The last few episodes have been kind of a response to everything that's been going on in the last few months, from the coronavirus to the Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Accordingly, they've largely focused on politics and economics, primarily, and of course, There's a lot more that can be said about these issues. But for the next few episodes, I'd like to return to the primary subject of this podcast, which is art. How does it live and what can it do in the present cultural, political, and economic moment? To kick off this arc of episodes, I want to tackle this sense of despair that I think many artists have nowadays, that our work is just preaching to the choir. Oftentimes, those of us that make political work especially can feel like we're just spinning gears, speaking to the already converted when we show our work in a museum or a gallery setting. After all, it's no secret that the kinds of people that are likely to see your work in a museum or a gallery are probably well-educated and politically liberal. So there's the sense that the problem with a lot of political work is that it simply fails to get outside of its own bubble. The elite cultural bubble where the best that you can do is make a bunch of liberals feel good about agreeing with each other. Some artists respond to this problem by trying to get outside the bubble, whether it's through street actions or public art or alternative venues of some kind. And in general, I applaud this effort. I think that art should be democratic and should try to reach as diverse an audience as possible. Nevertheless, I feel like with political art specifically, this despair over never being able to get outside the museum, art gallery, art institution bubble is a little bit misplaced. It's missing a key aspect of who the people inside that bubble really are. The more I think about this problem, the more I've come to feel that there couldn't be a more appropriate audience to speak to than that apparently liberal, culturally informed, and well-educated audience. And that's not because they're more important than other people, but simply because they have the most power. If your goal with your art is to advocate for some kind of social, political, economic, or ecological justice, I don't think you could find a more critical audience to reach. In fact, I would even take it one step further and say that there is no system of injustice that would even be possible without the quiet assent and tacit approval of this powerful group of well-educated, well-meaning, liberal elite. That's the argument of this episode. This is Capital A, Episode 11, Burst the Bubble.
In the preface to his new book, What Comes After Farce, the art critic Hal Foster notes that, quote, For too long, it is said, the left has focused on political identity and ceded political control to the right. Yet the cultural realm, museums, universities, and the like, is where many of us can exert what little leverage we do possess. End quote. Foster goes on to note how, confined to this cultural playground, artists have attempted to exert what little leverage they do possess by challenging the racist, sexist, colonialist, plutocratic underpinnings of those institutions. But while these actions are undoubtedly and critically important, in Foster's telling, there's a note of dissatisfaction, like someone who's unhappy with the consolation prize that they've received. Without much fuss, he seems to concede the idea that what happens in these cultural institutions stays in these cultural institutions. There seems to be very little thought about how those cultural institutions plug in to the wider cultural, economic, and political sphere. To me, this seems problematic. Not only does it grant to the critics of the museum everything that's on their wish list, relegating the museum and gallery to this periphery of social significance, it also ignores a very obvious fact, which is that as a class, or as a constellation of several classes, the people that go to galleries and museums are without a doubt the most powerful people in our society. This fact seems so blatantly obvious to me that I often wonder how it is that we ever allowed ourselves to get into this funk about the insignificance of the gallery or the museum in the first place. I mean, think about the people that go to galleries and museums. Let's just take a moment and try to break them down. Apart from artists themselves, I think there are three broad categories of gallery and museum goers. The first is the donor class. We all know that museums and large galleries are dependent on this thin slice of ultra-wealthy business elite to keep them going either as donors or as clients. We're talking the Kochs, bankers, politicians, the Sackler dynasty. City fathers, local Congress people. Clearly, when artists are in despair that their work is only preaching to the choir, they're not thinking about these people. This is obviously a very powerful group of people, precisely the kinds of people you'd want to reach with political or social justice-oriented art. They, however, are a minority. As powerful as these people are in the art world, they are not your standard museum or gallery goer. A second group of audience members at galleries and especially at museums are tourists. Now, tourists can be of absolutely any political inclination. They're usually middle class, and by definition, they are from elsewhere. So, in a sense, they come closest to the ideal that many artists have of reaching this mythical figure, the average citizen. Alas, they are also in the minority. So, 
If the first two groups are both the kinds of people that you would want to reach with your political and socially oriented art, who is it that artists are thinking about when they despair that they're only preaching to the choir? I think the answer is obvious. When most artists are thinking about who's likely to see their work in an art institution, they're thinking about well-educated liberals. And they're not wrong. While it's true that you sometimes get high-power people going in and out of museums, and while you occasionally get the middle-of-the-country, middle-class tourist, I think it's true that the majority of gallery and museum goers are well-educated, professionally successful, and politically liberal. But does that really mean that artists are just preaching to the choir? It may be true that liberal, well-educated professionals and artists advocating for social and political change profess many of the same values. But I want to challenge the notion that this automatically means they want the same things. While they may not be the conservative business elite of the David Koch clan, I think it's important to recognize that well-educated, professionally successful liberals do form an elite of their own. And the dirty little secret, the under-acknowledged truth, is that elites of all kinds are generally resistant to structural changes to the systems that have made them elites. I think it should be clear by now that in this episode, When I use the word liberal, I'm not talking about the entire left, but a particular part of it, the kind of center-left, New York Times-ish voter that Democratic Party politics mostly caters to. This is in contrast to what some people call the progressive wing of the party, the more Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren-ish, mostly younger voters who have a greater sense of urgency, perhaps, around issues of social, environmental, and economic justice. So, just a heads up. In this episode, when I use the word liberal, I'm talking about center-left, not progressive. The most lucid analysis that I have read of this group of well-educated, professionally successful liberals and how they differ from other groups on the left was carried out by the French economist Thomas Piketty in his new book, Capital and Ideology, which just came out in January of 2020. If you're not familiar with Piketty's work, I highly recommend it. It's an extremely clear-headed look at economics today written in very accessible, non-technocratic language. He's not just writing for economists. Anyway, one of the biggest ideas that Piketty tries to get across in his book is this thing that he calls the reversal of the educational cleavage. This is a very dry term for something that's extremely important and something that no one ever taught me in school or outside of it. We all know that well-educated people tend to vote left. But what they don't tell you is that it wasn't always true. As recently as 50 years ago, not just in the United States but also in Western Europe, well-educated people tended to vote right. In the middle of the century, in the United States, in England, in France, in Germany, you name it, the right was the side of the elite. 
And Piketty really breaks this down into three different axes. The axis of wealth, that's the amount of property and stock that you have. The axis of income, which is your salary or your wages. And the axis of education, which is the highest degree you attained. If you were on the higher end of any of these three spectrums, you voted right. The statistics on this are extremely clear. Well-educated people, just like wealthy people, just like high earners, clearly preferred the parties of the right from the middle to the second half of the 20th century. By contrast, if you had little wealth, if you were a low earner, and if you were poorly educated, you tended to vote with statistical clarity for the parties of the left. This means that our popular image that the poor and uneducated tend to vote right because they're poor and uneducated, is an artifact of recent history if it's true at all. 50 or 60 years ago, the poor and uneducated voted left, and there was no left without them. What happened then is that sometime around the 1970s, this three-way correspondence between wealth income and education starts to slowly break down over the course of several decades. While the wealthy of all countries continue to vote right, the well-educated begin to shift towards the left, so that by the 90s there's this clear correspondence between high education and being politically liberal. Now, by itself, this is neither a good thing nor a bad thing. But what makes it a little troubling is a second trend that begins to emerge around the same time, which is a sudden and steep decline in voter participation among the lower and working classes. Again, in the United States especially, we're accustomed to this figure that voting participation is 50%. But no one ever breaks that down for you by class. It turns out that the upper classes and the middle classes vote a lot more than 50%, and the lower classes vote a lot less. Moreover, this too is an artifact of recent history. As recently as 50 or 60 years ago, the lower and working classes participated a lot more in electoral politics. And like the trend of the well-educated towards the left, this is not just an American phenomenon. We see the same trend going on in England, in France, in Germany, and in other countries in Central and Western Europe. So when you take these two trends together, the trend of the well-educated towards the left and the decline in voter participation in the lower and working classes, what do they mean for our political landscape? Piketty is unequivocal. Somehow, between the 1970s and the 1990s, we went from a system of class-based voting that pitted elites against the disadvantaged to a system dominated not by one, but by two separate elites. A financial elite on the right and an intellectual professional elite on the left. In today's political landscape, Liberal versus conservative is no longer about the disadvantaged versus the advantaged. It's just a tug of war between two different kinds of elite. And here's the tragedy of it. While these two elites may disagree on many important issues, such as 
the right to an abortion, minority rights, immigration, etc. The open secret is that neither of them particularly prioritize reducing wealth and income inequality, either in this country or in Western Europe. I mean, just look at the faces of your Joe Bidens, your Nancy Pelosi's, your Tony Blair's and Emmanuel Macron's, and tell me honestly, do these people care about reducing income inequality? Of course not. And why should they? In Piketty's words, they are the winners of the game of education and globalization. Why would they want to overturn the system that has made them into elites? Consider further that as the well-educated are shifting towards the left throughout the 80s and 90s, Thatcher-Reaganism is picking up steam, deregulating the economy, cutting taxes on the wealthy, favoring big business, and generally constructing the neoliberal world order we live under today. You might be tempted to say that, well, this just means that the well-educated saw the disaster in the making that was Thatcher-Reaganism, and this pushed them towards the left. That would be a very nice story if it were true. Unfortunately, as Piketty argues in his book, the parties of the left have had ample opportunity in the 40 years since Thatcher-Reagan to turn back the neoliberal tide. But from Obama to Bill Clinton to Tony Blair to Francois Hollande and Emmanuel Macron, whenever they have had control of their respective governments, instead of seriously attempting to reverse the policies of the Thatcher-Reagan era, the parties of the left have sheepishly accepted and therefore legitimized the new world order. Now, there's a lot more to this story. I think this history is so important that I'm probably going to do a whole episode on Piketty alone in the coming months here. But for the time being, I want to get back to what all of this means for our story for the audience that is likely to encounter your political work in a gallery or a museum setting. And I think for me the major takeaway is that this class of well-educated, professionally successful liberals finds itself today caught in a contradiction. On the one hand, today's liberal elite wants to think of itself as being on the right side of history. It's very important to them to have the right opinions and to be on the right side of social issues, supporting women's rights, minority rights, rights for LGBTQ, etc. At the same time, however, as a group, they are extremely skittish about any structural changes to the system that has made them successful, wealthy, and relevant. It's a paradoxical position. What it comes down to ultimately is wanting progress without change. So how do you square that? How do you make consistent a desire for progress without change? I think basically there are two strategies here. First, as a group, these successful professional liberals have decided that social issues 
are less threatening to their position than economic ones. And it's debatable whether or not that's actually true. I think they probably have an impoverished understanding of what it means to support rights for women, rights for minorities, etc., which include economic rights. But that's an issue I tackle in a little bit more detail in Episode 9, Reparations. So I want to leave that aside for now. The second strategy, unfortunately, involves turning a battle over policies into a battle over words. It involves taking the political struggle out of the arena of actions and into the arena of rhetoric. To show how this works, I want to read a few selections from two articles that I found really eye-opening here. The first is an opinion piece published in the New York Times by Betsy Hodges, the former mayor of Minneapolis, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. She titles her piece, As Mayor of Minneapolis, I Saw How White Liberals Block Change. Here are just two passages. Quote, White liberals, despite believing we are saying and doing the right things, have resisted the systemic changes our cities have needed for decades. We have mostly settled for illusions of change, like testing pilot programs and funding volunteer opportunities. These efforts make us feel better about racism, but fundamentally change little for the communities of color whose disadvantages often come from the hoarding of advantage by mostly white neighborhoods." End quote. A little later, she gives a few examples. Quote, In Minneapolis, the white liberals I represented as a council member and mayor were very supportive of summer jobs programs that benefited young people of color. I also saw them fight every proposal to fundamentally change how we provide education to those same young people. They applauded restoring funding for the rental assistance hotline. They also signed petitions and brought lawsuits against sweeping reform to zoning laws that would promote housing affordability and integration. End quote. I'll have a link to this article in the episode description. It's a real eye-opener. Now, to return to museums and galleries, there are few institutions that are more self-consciously liberal and progressive than our art institutions. But... Because museums and galleries tend to be run by this same class of well-educated, highly successful liberals, it should surprise no one to find that the same dynamic of support change in theory, block change in practice, is going on there. A few weeks ago, Hyperallergic published a long article dealing with accusations that several staff members at the Brooklyn Museum have made that the museum mistreats takes advantage of, and sometimes even bullies, its staff members of color. Some of these accusations are pretty damning, such as a pay gap between a white curator and a curator of color of the same position. Other accusations are not quite as serious as that, such as the fact that the director of the museum, Ann Pasternak, circulated an email in the wake of the George Floyd murder claiming that she was working with the museum's Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Access Committee to reflect on next steps. It quickly turned out that Pasternak had never attended any of the committee's meetings and was not in touch with any of its members. Whatever the severity of each accusation, there does seem to be a common pattern to them, which is that 
for the museum's upper management. Racial justice, equity, and inclusion seems to be more of a rhetorical stance than a practical blueprint for action. And the sad part is that I think this is in keeping with the general politics of the well-to-do liberal class. These politics are more about talking the talk than walking the walk. It's more about abstract expressions of principle than any kind of practical support for policies that will materially promote justice. And again, this makes sense. The material promotion of justice threatens the elite status of that same class. So while they may want to present themselves as being on the right side of every issue, in material terms, their interests are aligned directly against the promotion of equality and justice, whether it's economically speaking, racially speaking, or even, yes, environmentally speaking. These are the people that you're talking to when you put political art in a museum or a gallery. It's crazy to me that, as a group, artists have kind of taken this audience at their word when they say that they stand with justice. Politics is about more than saying the right things. Politics is about doing the right things. And as a class, not only has this professional elite not done much about their professed values, but I would actually go one step further and say that they are the main impediment to change today. These are the people that present themselves as the resistance. This is the main base of the Democratic Party, the main base of new labor in Britain, the main base of the socialists in France. Without this base's quiet approval, the parties of the left could never have gone from being the parties of the disadvantaged to the parties that quietly accept the Reagan revolution. In a recent lecture, the French philosopher Alain Badiou asks a very curious and simple question. How come history didn't turn out the way Marx thought it would? Why didn't the struggle between capitalists and proletariat lead to revolution? Badiou's answer is simple. Marx did not account for the middle class. Without them, our politics would be a simple naked struggle for power between two directly competing factions. But this third element makes our politics the complex field that it is today. They, the middle class, today's well-educated professionals, are the bellwether. Whoever they side with wins. And so far, they have chosen to split their vote, as it were. With their words, they side with the disadvantaged. With their actions, they side with the powerful. That's why neoliberalism keeps on going. I want to end this episode by doing a read of a really remarkable scene from the 2017 movie The Square by Swedish director Ruben Östlund. I wish I could say that this is going to be a close read, but honestly, the scene is so complex and there's so much going on that I don't think I can do more than scratch the surface. If you haven't seen the movie, 
It's incredible. I couldn't recommend it more. There have been a few attempts to critique the art world in film, and most of them that I can think of, from the 2006 film Art School Confidential to the Steel Cube scene from Woody Allen's Manhattan, fall pretty flat. They fall flat because they don't really have a conception of what it is they are critiquing. What makes The Square really incredible is that it is clear that director Ruben Östlund knows the art world. He has clearly spent a lot of time inside the art world and he is able to intelligently critique it on its own terms, measure it by its own internal failures. The people in the movie are all liberals. They all have the right opinions, they all take the right positions on everything. At the same time, it is made clear that they are the ones who benefit most from inequalities in contemporary Sweden and that they are in no hurry to see these inequalities go away. But this is only the movie's most obvious feature and it's not actually why I bring it up. What I want to look at is the most cryptic scene in the film. The setting is a fundraiser for a museum of contemporary art. A bunch of donors and art world insiders are in a ballroom getting ready to enjoy a fancy dinner. But before the food is served, they are to be treated to a piece of performance art. The artist enters shirtless. He's muscular and uncouth and moves around grunting like an ape. The dinner guests watch with patient amusement as his actions become more and more provocative, eventually getting entirely out of hand. Here is Hal Foster's description of the scene from his latest book, What Comes After Farce. Quote, He cavorts around the banquet hall like an angry ape, and the culturati are amused, titillated, even provoked. But then they know the rules of the game. This is only a performance after all. Soon, however, the situation gets out of hand. The apish man mocks the artist, challenges him, then forces him to flee the room. The curator declares the performance over, but the grunting man carries on, molesting other attendees, then assaulting a woman. This display of aggression run amok upends more than cultural decorum. For a moment, the beast has become sovereign, and though the film was shot before Trump was elected, the scene reads as an allegory of his transgressive rule. How to respond. No one in the high caste at the dinner seems to know, until at last the tuxedoed men, now crazed, rise up against this primal figure. End quote. Foster wants to read this scene as an allegory for the dilemma of the artist in the age of Trump. The left are used to being the ones doing the transgressing. So what are they to do, Foster asks, when it's the right that's running roughshod all over our institutions and cultural norms? Are they supposed to suddenly switch places and become the policemen of all of society's norms and taboos? Foster's answer is, no, not exactly. For Foster, the right's transgressive behavior represents an opportunity for the left not to reinforce the norms as they were before, but to, quote, bend them to a new configuration of community. 
take advantage of the disruption to create a new and better world. Now, by itself, this question of what is the left to do when the right co-ops the strategy of transgression is an interesting question, and I think Foster's answer is going in the right direction. However, as a reading of this particular scene from this particular movie, I think it's unsatisfying. I don't read the dinner guests as allegories for the left, and I don't read the apish man as an allegory for Trump. I think it's a little naive to read these well-heeled dinner guests as allegories for the left just because they profess to have those progressive values. I think it's much more natural to read them at face value, simply as who they are in the movie, which is not leftists, not artists, but the well-educated, well-to-do patrons and constituents of this art institution. In other words, liberals. The question then becomes, why don't any of these nice white liberals do anything to stop the violence? And the answer is because they are more concerned with keeping up the appearance of being progressive than they are with stopping any actual violence. In this case, the appearance to be kept up is the appearance of permissive open-mindedness towards artistic expression. To stand up and to demand a stop to the violence would be tantamount to exposing themselves for rubes. So, for me, the first key tension of the scene is the tension between having all the right opinions on the level of appearances and being complicit in violence on the level of reality. The second question is, what is the nature of this violence? The apish performance artist is not an external threat. He doesn't wear the guise of a homeless person or a blue-collar guy who comes in to crash the party. Such a figure would be immediately and sternly rebuked by the dinner guests. They would have no problem muzzling that guy. But that's not what happens here. The reason he is able to get away with his shocking behavior for so long is because he comes out of the orbit of the dinner guests themselves and he is party to, call it, a treaty or a social contract with the dinner guests as to how they are to react to his particular brand of violence. His violence is their violence. The system that the patrons participate in is already a system of violence, a system of inequality of wealth, a system of climate destruction, a system of tearing holes in the social bond for profit. It's a system that all of them benefit from as captains of industry and or representatives of the liberal professional elite. This violence is covered up by the appearance of all the right values, the appearance of all the right opinions, the appearance of taking the right stand on every issue. And the point is that they know. The dinner guests know that there's a problem here. They're very uncomfortable from the very beginning. And the question is only, how long does it take? How obvious does the violence have to be for them to be forced by their own professed values to do something about it? And I think the answer is that at some point, the apish man crosses a line. It's a line that's ill-defined. 
Part of the hesitation is that no one is quite certain where it is or at what point it is crossed. But at some point, the apish man goes from playing by the rules that have been mutually established for how this violence can play out to being just a little bit too naked about it, to being just a little bit too obvious about it, to upending the decorum, which is the core value, the core true value of this liberal set. If the apish man is Trump, then that is what he represents. That point at which the violence is no longer acceptable on the level of appearances. We know that at that point, it's already too late. Before the tuxedoed men finally do get it together to rise up against this violence, there is this agonizingly long sequence where the apish man is violently assaulting a woman in public and no one does anything about it. What's chilling about this sequence is how long it lasts. It takes the tuxedoed men an unconscionable amount of time before they decide that enough is enough, that they can no longer be complicit in the violence. I think the conclusion that I want to draw this episode to is that we can't let it take that long. If we leave it to the nice liberals to draw the boundary, it will be too late. They are too comfortable, too complacent, and too chicken shit scared to do the right thing. However, we as people who care about the future of this planet and the future of this society also need them. As Alain Badiou said, whoever they side with wins. And we, as the people who give a shit, do have an ace up our sleeves, which is that very contradiction that the liberal set finds themselves in, that very guilt that they have, that need to appear to be on the right side of every issue. As artists, we could not ask for a more appropriate audience for political work than the audience of our galleries and museums. These are the people that have to be convinced. And to be clear, I'm not saying that there's some kind of conspiracy going. I don't think that center-left Democrats get together in cabals and come up with strategies to keep change from happening by convincing us that they already support it. I think their expressions of concern are sincere. I simply think that the policies and the candidates that they support are inconsistent with the values that they profess. Again, I think that they are caught in a contradiction. On the one hand, they sincerely want to be on the right side of these issues. On the other hand, they are also afraid of changing the world that has given them their privileged status. That tension is the great opportunity for art inside the bubble. I'm not saying shock the bourgeoisie. They are unshockable. I'm saying force them to confront the silent choice that they've been making all along. Because in fact, we do not all agree. There is a difference between saying and doing. 
Don't despair about being in the bubble. Burst the bubble. That bubble is a utopian illusion. That nice white liberal mirage that you can have progress without change, that things can get better and somehow stay the same, is the only thing keeping us from the serious work of building a world that is better for everyone. Not just the people at the bottom, but also the people in the middle, and yes, even the nice white liberals at the top. I don't know what kind of art is capable of shaking us from our complacency, but I do know that the bubble is where it belongs, the only place where it finds its proper audience. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me next time. Until then, this has been Capital A.